You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Did you know that you can stream The French Chef with Julia Child on the PBS Documentaries Prime Video channel? See where America's obsession with cooking shows began and start your free trial today. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Karen Spring Mills founder, Kevin Morse. In today's episode, we'll talk to Kevin about how Karen Spring is rebuilding our food system through milling why we need more mills to thrive, and we'll hear Kevin's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. 60 years ago, Julia had an aha moment. I'm not referring to when she ate Saumonière in Rouen. That was 70 years ago. I'm talking about when Julia returned to the United States from a decade abroad and was horrified by the industrialization of the American food system. Now, to be fair, I don't think Julia was reacting to the environmental toll that is now readily apparent. Her concern was driven by the tasteless products being produced and an instinct that this was the wrong direction. While Julia didn't publicly focus on farmers, at the foundation, we've concluded that we need to increase our remit to include supporting environmentally sensitive agriculture. The future of good eating, and more importantly, the planet, depends on it. Now, in case you hadn't heard, Modern agriculture is one of the largest contributors to greenhouse gases. How we eat and the food system we support is as dangerous as our reliance on fossil fuel. You may have noticed an enhanced focus on sustainability this season, such as our conversation in episode 161 with Jesse Smith at the White Buffalo Land Trust, or in episode 163 featuring Santa Barbara County innovators who are rebuilding the food system including farmer Melissa Sarongan, who created a local cooperative mill to help fellow farmers process their wheat. Someone equally committed to this mission is Kevin Morse, founder and CEO of Cairn Spring Mills in Western Washington State. We were introduced to Cairn Spring in episode 146 by renowned baker Chad Robertson and his colleague Jen Latham of Tartine Bakery. Cairn Spring is one of their main flower suppliers. Karen Springs' 5,000-square-foot facility opened in 2017 and mills grain from farmers in nearby Washington and Oregon State, prioritizing quality over volume and cost. Kevin has 30 years' experience in rural economic development, government relations, farming, and working lands conservation. 
a proud resident of Washington State's Skagit Valley, Kevin is an avid fisherman and outdoorsman who loves to cook and bake. He joins us today to tell us why we should care more about the flour we're baking with and how local mills can help rebuild our broken food system. Welcome to the podcast, Kevin. Thank you, Todd. It's great to be here. Well, we're really happy you could join us. And I, you know, I think this is a topic that people don't think about how vitally important milling is. It, it, it almost seems like something historic, but it still really underpins daily life. But I think, unfortunately, is faded to the background of people's consciousness. And I think one of the things you're doing is trying to raise that consciousness. So tell us, let's start with connecting what is the big issue in our food system that you set out to tackle by building something as specific as a regional mill? Yeah, well, that's a great question. And your your intro was a great segue regarding Julia's um, issue with the industrialization of our food system. Because what's happened over the past 100 years, and milling in particular, is we've gone from this community-based, diversified, decentralized system that kept value in the community uh, and really featured healthy grains grown without a lot, without a lot of chemicals to one that's highly industrialized, highly processed, and basically bankrupt many of our rural communities and transported that value out of the community. So the problem specifically that we are addressing with Karen Spring Mills, and you'll hear the term now more frequently, is middle infrastructure. Right now, uh, farmers who are stuck in the grain commodity system basically have one market. And that market is mostly a race to the bottom because the commodity grain prices do not afford the farmer a price that keeps him sustainable or rewards him for good farming or incentivizes him for good farming practices. Mm. So what we're trying to do is bring back uh, and create a new regional milling model that incentivizes farmers to implement good stewardship, rewards them for the good stewardship they're already doing make cleaner, healthier flour, and frankly, keep our communities more healthy and prosperous by creating the jobs here instead of sending them outside of the community. And I, I think you you started before the pandemic, but my feeling is, and I'm really hoping to keep this in people's consciousness, is the pandemic really revealed how the, the, the significant flaws in the infrastructure of our food system in the world and in the United States. And do you see that that maybe more exposure to things you were already confronting has fostered more desire for change? Or do do you still feel like it's going to be a huge uphill battle because the other forces are so entrenched? Well, you're exactly correct, actually, Todd. The The pandemic helped people discover local mills and milling once again. The grocery store shelves were empty for quite some time. And so um, when the pandemic started, we were primarily selling flour into the food service market to bakers like Chad and other production bakeries too. And we put the word out that, you know, our our supply chain is local. So unlike the the global supply chains that broke down, we had flour for our bakers. We kept people employed and um, we opened up the mill every Friday for sales to the public. We had 
cars, three to 400 cars around the block uh, for every Friday buying. These folks were buying 50 to 100 pounds of flour at a time. And it, it was extremely gratifying, one, to be able to serve our community like that. And then the result of that that came back to us was we got unsolicited comments from the home bakers saying, oh, my gosh, my pancakes never tasted this good. My sourdough bread never tasted this good. What are you guys doing different? And that phenomenon happened around the country where there's other local regional mills starting to spring up. And ever since then, we're running seven days a week right now, just trying to keep up the demand. Because you have increased demand from non-commercial customers. Yes. Yeah. I mean, both our commercial customer base is growing. Uh, but now we have uh, more than 20% of our sales are direct-to-consumer right here from the mill and our online store at KarenSpring.com. And we're in 100 grocery stores now in the Puget Sound and region and down into Portland, Oregon. And so the momentum keeps building. Our, you know, The sourdough craze that hit the country really helped to lift us up, and uh, it's continuing today. Well, that, 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 as you said, gratifying to you, but it's also fantastic to hear. Let's um, take a step back and just talk a little bit more about the mill itself. And what is it that, because we haven't talked about it, what distinguishes your mill from a larger industrial one? Is it just where it sources the grain and the, and the farmers you work with, or is actually the mill a different kind of mill? Uh, a little bit of both. So it might be helpful for me to explain how the industrial mills work first, and then we can compare that. Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, the big mills that we have in this country today, there's about 180 of them. A uh, hundred years ago, we had 24,000 local regional mills, just to give you a sense of the consolidation and industrialization that happened. Um, they can make up to 5 million pounds in one day. Their whole model is based on the cheapest grain possible, high output, and very low margin. Their supply chain is global. So they are sourcing grain from Kansas, Canada, Kansas, Kazakhstan, China, and other parts of the world just to get the cheapest grain. And it's frankly not focused on quality. It's not focused on traceability. And it's not focused on... <clears throat> premium grains just for milling and baking quality. In fact, they don't even um, test their grains for flavor. So our mill, in terms of scale and process, we have uh, researched milling systems over in Europe. We wanted to make a more healthy, naturally nutritious bread flour. Uh, and it combines some modern technology of a roller mill, which crushes the grain into whole grain flour. And then we actually use stone mills to finish our product. And so we make um, a flour that is more naturally nutritious. There's, there's no additives. Uh, we source directly from the farmers and we source grains that we have chosen specifically because they have good growing qualities for the farmer, but also exceptional milling and baking qualities and things like flavor which has been missing from the industrial flour we've had over the past hundred years. Well, and I think people have posited, I don't think they've ever done a study that's conclusive, that some of the rise in gluten intolerance is, is potentially from the fact of people eating so much industrialized uh, grain or flour. 
That's absolutely correct. What we're finding and what science is starting to show us is, um, you know, celiac disease is real. Uh, at the root cause is probably the chemicals in our food system and in our grains and in our flour. And it's an immune system response. So we have a number of customers, even a baker, one of our bakers, Sean, couldn't eat his own bread for 20 years. And he started using our flour and started eating bread again. He goes, I don't know what happened, but I can eat bread again. And we can only guess right now. I don't have scientific studies yet, but that's because we have a cleaner supply chain and source. And um, plus it's naturally nutritious. So I think we're going to see more and more findings scientifically that prove that out, Todd. Yeah, no, I hope so. It certainly makes sense to me. And then if you just go back to Julia's basics, which were not scientific, but just about taste and, you know, why would you want to eat bread that's totally tasteless, especially, but sometimes it helps if you haven't had great bread that's full of flavor, then you kind of don't know what you're missing. So you need kind of both to really say, to have that sort of aha moment. I think right before the pandemic, I had already said is sort of artisanal bakeries were growing. I was like, life's too short to eat bad bread. And honestly, if it means you eat less of it because it's more expensive, that might not be a bad thing. Hallelujah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So that that is my, that is a mantra you can steal if you don't use it already. Uh, right. <laughs> right, yeah. You know, and one of my, my favorite quotes from Julia was uh, something like, how can a nation be great if its bread tastes like Kleenex? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I don't know if you've been to France lately, but one of my horrors is that that France is moving in the wrong direction. Now, while you can still get a beautiful croissant in Paris, if you're particularly in other regions of France or less well-to-do regions of France, their production is also moving toward industrialization and many of the small bakers who used to produce these amazing what are labor-intensive croissant are now using industrialized method and the 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 bread Pastries do not taste as good, and what they sell in the grocery stores that used to be better is 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 pretty terrible. It's very depressing. So I think <laughs> it's is. good that there there are people like you uh, leading the way in the states, and will hopefully help uh, France find their way back. I wanted to talk to you about the this whole idea of, of what I said at the top of the show. A lot of people don't think about milling. They probably have more awareness of grain farming and wheat fields in the Midwest or in the plains of Canada, but that millers are, are as if not more essential because you can't eat raw grain. It doesn't, it doesn't make bread, but yet the milling process creates the flour that is this product that, you know, in classical French cooking, you can turn into a thousand different creations, which is pretty amazing. So I, I wanted to hear from you about your view of the relationship for flour production between the farmer and the miller, and how fundamental is this relationship to bread, but also to our entire food system? Yeah, well, you know, the, the relationship between farmer and miller has uh, not been great over the past 50 to 100 years. And that's something that's missing from our current food system. What we're finding as we rebuild these relationships and connection is it's the farmers. No, it's really the farmers who are the heroes. And it's the farmers that are um, really facing hardship as the industrial food system continues to claw away at our farmland ownership. And so what, what we're doing by reestablishing that connection 
is not only connecting them to a higher value market. What I hear from our farmers is it's also reconnecting to something that's meaningful to them. You know, when, when the farmers know that the grain they're growing is going into the bread down at the bread farm just down the street or to Tartine Bakery in San Francisco, it also gives them a sense of pride. And it creates a, a connection with community that they just haven't had since the industrial food system really took hold in this country. And for us, you know, there's, there's more than 30 or 40,000 varieties of grain. And grain has terroir, just like wine grapes. And so they're helping us rediscover what grows well here, um, how it yields, how it produces for them. And um, then they're working with us to test these varietals that are not commodity, but have better nutrition and baking uh, and flavor qualities. So it's really a symbiotic relationship that is extremely important because if we lose the farmer's local knowledge, we really lose uh, a historic knowledge of how best to take care of the land and how to produce the most flavorful, nutritious food possible. Because the industrial food system require, you know, it focuses on scale, technology, monocrop farming, and it's chemical intensive, which has tremendous impacts on both our environmental health and our human health. And that's interesting because I feel like one of the things that that I say about the pandemic and in related to what's happening in the environment and with the planet is nature is still very powerful and it fights back. So we can do all kinds of things to buck nature, but it 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 has more power than I think the individual. And I think what's ironic is right, the whole chemical-based farming system was this attempt by man to outdo nature by you know, fighting these things that make it harder. But the only way to do that was to basically kill things, right? But there are, I assume the farmers that you're working with are also switching to either organic or sustainable or regenerative uh, practices to grow their wheat. That's correct. And the good thing for us here in the Magic Skagit is that we already grow 80 crops of commercial significance. Everything from artichokes to zucchini, we grow half the world's cabbage seed here. And so a long time ago, the farmers here, unlike other parts of the country, decided that they needed to implement crop rotations using cereal grains prim primarily in order to break disease cycles and add organic matter back to the soil. So they've been farming regeneratively for 120 years here and uh, mostly losing money on it because of the commodity system, but they've been doing it because it's the right thing and it sustains their culture and livelihood. So what we have now is, and, and some of these practices, you know, besides uh, the crop rotations are cover crops. We have farmers doing um, more organic animal integration, on-farm composting. So we're a very dynamic, complex uh, system. And we were visiting with one of the farmers here last week, Dave Hedlund, reminded us that the, that the NIH actually identified the Skagit as one of the most ideal farming systems in the world because of our diversity and rotations. And so now people are catching on. They're seeing what we're doing here. I have more farmers uh, approaching me, asking me if they could grow for us. And I'm sharing our production standards, both organic and uh, responsible regenerative. And, uh, you know, the farmers respond to markets. And so what's interesting to me is where we're like Switzerland, 
there's no political divide here. I could have people from all walks of life, all political spectrums, and they all rally and support this idea of rebuilding local food systems. I had one of our most conservative farmers, who's a longtime friend of mine at the ribbon cutting, break down in tears when we launched the mill. And so, um, you know, this mill is really like an old fashioned barn raising, Todd. The whole community pitched in to bring it to reality. No, and I'm struck by, I don't know if you know the folks at the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas, but they were saying a similar thing to me. They, they're a, essentially a laboratory, and they're, one of their key innovations is perennial wheat crops. Um, and, you know, they were saying the same thing, the intersection and that their daily life is the, these two very polar opposite communities, farmers who tend to be very conservative and liberal environmentalists, but yet they all are seeing the same things because they're very much on the ground. And what they care about fundamentally is not politics, but the planet and growing things and helping people. And that's where this sort of meeting of the minds and is sort of a very hopeful thing when you listen to the news to, to think about. And it sounds like you're feeling that live on the ground. Oh, we are. It's been one of my, my favorite aspects of building this company to see there's actually a place in this country or a topic where people can come together and actually get something done that's good for the world that's good for the community. And um, no sound bites from news organizations enter the discussion. <laughs> and so again, our, our goal here, Todd, in the beginning was to create a new model, scale it so it's a, a profitable standalone business, and then replicate it in other parts of the country. And that doesn't mean we have to own and operate all the mills, but really what I wanna do is, is help spark a movement. And uh, now we have farmers and potential millers from around the country, from Appalachia to the Southwest, uh, to, uh, to Japan, coming in, wanting to know how we're doing this and bringing diverse people, groups of people together to do the same thing in their communities. And uh, hopefully Julia's smiling down on us right now, seeing the progress we're making. I'm sure. I'm sure she's frustrated that she can't get there to, to actually uh, have a tour of your mill and, and sample the the product. All right, we're going to take a break and we'll be back with more from Miller, Kevin Morse. Stay with us. Did you know that you can stream The French Chef with Julia Child on the PBS Documentaries Prime video channel? Start your free trial today and see where America's obsession with cooking shows began, with one spirited woman who made French cuisine a spectator sport and forever changed the way we cook, eat, and think about food. In addition to The French Chef, the PBS Documentaries Prime Video Channel features a vast library of high-quality, thought-provoking, factual programs for curious viewers all from America's trusted home for documentaries, PBS. Welcome back. We're talking to Kevin Morse, founder and CEO of Cairn Spring Mills in Western Washington State. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about the product and kind of the other aspects of innovation that you're uh, involved in. And, you know, I mentioned that, that we learned about you uh, when we were talking to Chad Robertson and his colleagues at Tartine Bakery in episode 146. And I was just curious how 
how did your relationship uh, with Tartine begin? No, it all began in 2015. Uh, the Washington State University Bread Lab used to ho- host what they called grain gatherings here, where farmers, bakers uh, from around the country would come and gather and explore these new grains and the varietals that the Bread Lab was helping to bring to market. And Chad and I met and just hit it off right away. He was so excited about the new mill because he had spent time in Europe and was familiar with the types of flowers we were talking about uh, producing here. So he helped. He was such a huge help along the way in terms of defining the specs for the wheat, types of characteristics he was looking for in the product. And um, we've our, our friendship has continued to this day. Uh, you know, ever since our first bag of flour rolled off the milling line, uh, Tartine has been buying the product and uh, continues to grow their demand as they expand as well. So not only a great business partnership, but an incredible friendship that uh, I cherish. So it sounds like it, it's almost kismet in that his business was taking off right at the time you were starting and you managed to get introduced through the bread lab. So it was just it wasn't any. It wasn't anything more forced or deliberate than that, than a hap- happenstance of a, or or maybe, maybe let's talk about the bread lab for a second. So I'm fascinated there is a bread lab and I looked up Washington State University, which doesn't even have a campus near you. So why, <laughs> why is the bread lab there? And, uh, you know, how do you guys interact with it? Well, you know, the bread lab, and again, going, they were one of the primary thought leaders that brought this mill to fruition. And, and I'll probably add, and share more about some of the others. But Dr. Jones and his wheat breeder, Steve Lyon, and uh, their their PhD students, um, they showed up here, I think, a little over 10 years ago now. Um, and when Steve got over here to run the Ag Research Station, um, he discovered that, you know, Skagit Valley isn't even on a wheat production map that the USDA produces. I don't know if they've updated it yet, but he was surprised to find all these cereal grains being grown in the valley and then going to a commodity and the farmers weren't making any money out of it. So he was really the thought leader in saying, hey, you know what? We have something special here. We have some of the most nutrient-dense soils in the world that produce some of the most nutrient-dense and flavorful grains. Let's really dive in and see what we can do in terms of breeding new grain varietals specific for this environment. And that caught the attention of everyone from Cliff Bar to Patagonia. Uh, The port of Skagit, where we're located, had made a very unconventional commitment in terms of their job creation activities to bring value-added agricultural uh, systems back to the valley to maintain our farming heritage and economy. So they were really at the forefront uh, of this discussion. that, along with people like Tom and Sue Hunton from Camas Country Mill, which is a small privately owned mill in Oregon, they're co-founders of the mill. The farmers came together and started growing grains before we even had money to pay them. Uh, and then the bakers were all gathering around us, helping us, again, understand the quality and the product they needed and would buy. So this really was an old-fashioned barn raising, but the bread lab was really the tip of the spear. And so how do you, what's the relationship today? I mean, it's not been that long, but let's say five years on, how do you interact with the Bread Lab today? And are you guys in frequent contact or kind of on working on in in parallel planes? 
A little bit of both. I mean, the Bread Lab is really focused on whole grain flours. We produce both whole grain and these European style sifted flours. So um, they've got, we've got a little bit of a broader focus and reach. Uh, but just the other day, I was over every year, I go over and I tour their uh, wheat trials. I talked to Steve Lyon, who's probably the, the James Brown of, of wheat breeders, like the hardest working man in the business. <laughs> uh, and, and we're constantly assessing which new varietals are coming out that we'd like to get into the hands of our farmers and start milling. So always trying to be on the cusp of what's best for the soils, what's best for the farmers and, um, continuing to bring our customers the highest quality, most flavorful grains and flowers. So they're still an integral part of that. But we also work with other wheat breeding programs, uh, around the Pacific Northwest as well. And would you say that that wheat production in the Pacific Northwest is has has begun to increase, um, or it's it's more just a sort of refinement of what was already going on? You know, I think it's it's shifting, and you know, again, most of the wheat grown in the state historically has been commodity wheat. I think ninety percent of it was exported to Asia, so. What we're trying to do with um, the mill is create a market, a higher value market, so we keep that grain here and uh, make our our community um, more resilient in many ways because we're not relying on exports or imports or foreign markets. So um, there's a shift. I mean, I'm, I'm now working with some farmers in eastern Washington who are changing some of their farming practices so that they meet our standards and can produce for us. Um, and so I think we're going to continue to see a trend in the consumer requesting cleaner, healthier, locally produced grains, and the mar- and the, the farmers are going to continue to respond to that market. I was going to say, have you seen examples of, of, of your type of mill and connection with farmers in other parts of the country that have sprung up sort of after exposure to what you're doing or also in parallel? Um, yes, actually, we're we're still the only mill our size and capacity. Most we have this the space in between the large industrial mills, which can make five million pounds of flour in a year. We can make or at a day we can make five million pounds of flour in a year if we're running two shifts a day, seven days a week. So just to give you a sense of scale, mm. but there um, there are some wonderful mills uh, popping up around the country, and we collaborate. I mean, there's there's no it's a community, and we're all trying to spark this movement. So Barton Springs Mills down in Austin, Texas, Maine Grains in Maine, Carolina Ground, North Carolina, uh, Camas Country Mill down in uh, Junction City, Oregon. And there's a number of mills, Capay Mills and a few others popping up in California now. So um, we are seeing a movement start. Our challenge, frankly, for, from day one is this is a capital-intensive business. And so... It's hard to get funding when, one, people think you're crazy because you're getting into a commodity system and trying to add value to it. But, you know, we just say, look what happened to chocolate and craft beer and coffee. Flour has the same potential. So we're all trying to find ways to finance the infrastructure build out and um, build the market together. And they all have wonderful relationships with their growers as well. It's a very similar model. And to take it back to the consumer, you know, I, I certainly think there there's some 
uh, feedback, you know, about that tartines bread is too expensive and most, you know, only San Franciscans could afford to 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 buy that. I, I was curious because obviously you're not in San Francisco. You're in a place where uh, I I assume people live in a more modest uh, way than in Silicon Valley, perhaps. How how do you how do we break this cycle uh, where people expect bread to be cheap? But then also at a time of rising food cost, it's even more difficult to say to people, well, you really shouldn't buy the cheapest bread you can find at Walmart or Target because it's bad for you. You should buy a $7 loaf. Like what, what given that I, I'm, I'm sure you're sensitive to that, how, how do you look at it and what advice do you kind of give cooks and eaters in that regard? Yeah, you know, and that's a really challenging issue, Todd, to be honest, because everybody, especially during these times, uh, where everybody's watching their pocketbook, it's 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 a real challenge. What we're seeing here is once people get a taste of the bread, um, somehow the cost of it is not as big an issue. Once they learn that it is healthier, once they learn that it's supporting their local farmers, um, we're finding that they're willing to pay the premium price and uh, willing to forego maybe some of the other items they might have bought. Uh, in terms of affordability, you know, where we pay the farmers a price uh, for their grain where they make money, and it's sometimes double the commodity price. For us, as we've learned just the business model and reinvented the business model, a little bit, a little uh, of the secret to unlocking that issue is scale. Now, we don't want to get huge like in a big mill in Texas that makes five million pounds a day, but maybe five or six times bigger, we'll actually be able to produce a, a flour that's less expensive because the more capacity and output you have, the lower unit costs are, and you can pass that saving on to the consumer. So uh, there's a couple issues to tackle there. I guess you can narrow it down to public education and consumer education, uh, as well as just refining the business model. And you were talking about the the difficulty because um, we haven't talked that much about it, but I know you have pretty state of the art equipment that's imported and high tech, and and or a mixture of high tech and low tech, and um, all of that is very expensive. There seems to be a lot of investment interest in in at least food tech, and maybe that has more to do with like food delivery apps and things like that. But have you seen growing interest? in, you know, given that paradigm that you just described from the investment community now? I have, thank goodness. And part of it is where we're proving that there is a demand and a hunger for healthier grains and breads and flours. Uh, Frankly, part of it's the pandemic. Um, It was a wake-up call to see how fragile our supply chains are and how Mm -hmm. vulnerable we are as a country and a community. And so, People who we had spoken to six or seven years ago um, who said, ah, flour is a commodity ingredient, it's low margin, we're not interested. Those same people are calling us back saying, um, hey, we're interested in helping rebuild local food systems and would like to invest. So it's been great to see that shift. I hate it that it took a pandemic to bring about awareness, but you know, we'll take it. Yeah, unfortunately, that seems to be how human beings are wired. I mean, do you yeah. see a shift in the 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 massive industrial um millers i mean certainly i'm trying to think of the best example but you know now you can buy organic whatever at the grocery store it's still 
processed food. And, you know, I have my concerns about even like vegan burgers if, if that are in the frozen food section and you look at what's in them, it's, you know, sort of the same list of chemicals that are in other processed foods. But, you know, I think that's sort of a blessing and a curse. Or how do you look at it in terms of uh, the big gorillas in the industry coming in and starting to think, oh, well, we're going to have a premium grain product for a certain market. Is that a good thing? Or does that tend to be a little bit of what's happening in the organic, which is more of a label that still has all kinds of other, um, you know, undesirable outcomes within that supply chain? Yeah, you know, I think I have mixed mixed feelings about that. I think it's good if we can push some of the larger companies to actually commit to less chemical intensive practices and better stewardship. I'm still suspect though. I see a lot of those companies, what I call grain washing. Yeah. I, I, I also know that even the organic supply chain is somewhat suspect. If you do research, you know, um, a shipment from Turkey or Kazakhstan or, or Russia will start out as uh, conventional and show up here as organic. Um, and so, you know, I think anytime the markets can push the big companies to do good things, that's an improvement. I would just, you know, say the best thing the consumer can do is get educated, ask good questions, ask their bakers where they get good flour or where they get their flour from and, and to buy their flour and breads from people they know are, are sourcing from mills like ours. And that's really going to help continue to grow the movement. And I, I wanted just because I've been having conversations about this that are interesting to me, and I'm very far from being a, a wheat farmer or a miller. Uh, but it's interesting to me is, is do you have a point of view on on perennial grain crops? It sounds like the bread lab is, is doing research on them. How are you milling any or do you mill any on a sort of experimental basis? Or is your equipment not set up to do that? Oh, we can definitely mill it. Um, we're watching closely because, again, for us, our promise to our customers is is uh, a flower that perform is exceptionally um, flavorful and performs well. And the perennial grain crops are still coming along in terms of their baking quality. They tend to be fairly low gluten, and so um, what we're seeing and what we're trying is milling some of those crops and then blending it in with um, some of our other flowers to give it the strength it needs. So right now I see it as a great addition to a loaf of bread. Um, it still has a ways to go to be able to stand up by itself to be a good bread flower. But I'm very, I mean, I would love to see more perennial grain around this valley and around the country and the world, because that truly is a regenerative crop. Yeah. And for those who don't know, and we'll cover this more in a future episode, perennial grains are, are like a grass they're actually different than wheat. And so they regenerate on their own rather than traditional, uh, traditional is the wrong word because it was invented, but the, the contemporary and, and for the last, you know, 7,500 years grain grown in the United States and around the world needs to be replanted with seed every year. And perennials are, are different because they can regenerate usually at least two to three cycles. And that's where a lot of scientific innovation is looking because it's ultimately more, more sustainable and, and, um, environmentally sensitive. Yeah, it's a great, I mean, talking about a way to address climate change, the carbon capture opportunities for perennial grains is is incredible. That would be great for the planet. Well, I like how hopeful we can make this, <laughs> this episode. So we're going to come back and we'll hear Kevin's Julia moment. 
Let us know what you think of today's show. Send us an email or voice memo to contact juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. No, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she might have inspired them in their career. Kevin, what's your Julia moment? Wow. You know, my this was a hard one, Todd. There's so many. Um, but I have to tell you, the one, my first memory of Julia, and this is an inspirational moment, was uh, when I was growing up with my Italian grandparents, and um, we had a six-aisle grocery store with a deli and a butcher shop in the back. My grandparents were Italian immigrants. Great-grandparents were. And I'll never forget um, when we would be watching the Julie Child show with my grandmother and she'd say, I wish, I wish someone would do for Italian food what Julie is doing for French food and helping, uh, and this was her uh, broken English, the Marigans, really explore and discovered what good food is about. And it was from that, those moments in my childhood and, and being able to see what Julia was doing that, you know, I've been trying to replicate the reverence for community and food and bringing people together around food ever since I was a child. And Julia inspired so much of that. Uh, and to this day, I mean, in many ways, um, my path has turned out to be similar. I didn't find my passion or what I think was my calling until my 50s, like Julia. And so when I get tired or challenged and frustrated, I'm like, wow, you know what? Look what Julia did until she was 91. What would Julia do right now? And um, so she continues to be an inspiration today just by what she's brought to the world, by bringing us together around good food, and her fortitude and tenacity and undauntability when it comes to really showing people the blessings and the good fortune we have by having access to local food. Well, I think that's lovely. And I think as we talked about before, I think Julia would have been very enthusiastic and inspired uh, by what you're doing. And of course would have wanted you immediately to send her a bag of flowers so she could start testing it and see, see how it compared to what she remembered eating from maybe even from her childhood in California. I hope so. I, I was talking to Julie Cohen yesterday, and I found it interesting that she told me how when Julia started trying to uh, write and bake her bed, bread recipes, that um, she couldn't make the United States made flour work. You know, at that time, it was probably bromated, bleached, and had all kind of additives in it as well. But uh, my guess is Julia was baking with flowers in France that were milled and sourced in a similar way we do here at Cairn Spring today. So she's planted some seeds here that have flourished and will continue to grow. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't know if people realize that for authors, uh, some of whom I know, who wrote for an American market, but about European food, whether it's French or Italian, they often had to import 
um, and generally illegally because there wasn't a method you put it in your suitcase, American flour to be able to test the European recipes with it because the results would be so different than if you're using French, you know, local French flour, or I think they call it Italian double zero, which you can get because their properties are different. Going back to what, what you mentioned before about terroir, which is both, you know, what types of, of wheat are grown and the, the climate and then how they're milled. Absolutely. And, you know, we're, we're finally, we're being discovered right now, um, right now, primarily by the pizzoli, uh, where mm -hmm. they are saying, Hey, this is as good or better than the flour I've been importing from Italy. And they are, are using our flour hundred percent in their, in their pizzas and, uh, and, you know, flatbreads. And so it's, it's been a wonderful confirmation that we're heading in the right direction. Well, that is great, and I'm sure gratifying for them that they're, they're, the, the food miles involved to get that flour are, are reduced. Yeah, they are. And just to be able to know that they can call a miller, call me and ask me questions about the flour. You know, the big companies, there's no one they can call to discuss. Like, they want to know who the farmers are. They want pictures of the fields. Um, they want us to send different samples for them to try. I'll go visit with them and spend two or three days in the kitchen with them as they, they try out the flowers. And so I think, again, it reminds them of the type of relationship they had with their millers in Europe uh, in the old days. And uh, so hopefully we'll have a few more mills around this country someday, and there'll be many others springing up as well. Well, everything old is new again. So that, that still rings true. Thanks for joining us, Kevin. Todd, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure, and thanks everyone for listening. If you want to learn more, it's at Karen Spring Mills on Instagram and Facebook. And as Kevin mentioned, you can order their flour directly now from the mill. Go to karenspring.com and click on shop. For all the latest from the foundation, it's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at GBH. Thanks, as always, to my co-producer of the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.